nowadays, it, it just seems like, uh, like to be considered to be a loving person that you have to figure out how to make somebody else happy. Does that sound like true to you? It's like you're considered a loving person if you make other people happy. But, but what if what makes them happy is not right? It's not good for them. It's not healthy for them. What if what makes them happy is actually evil? What if, what if it's actually wrong? Um, so if we were to ask this question, what does love look like to God? What does love look like to the one who actually can give the definition of love? He would say it's different than what the world thinks. He would say that love is encouraging others to do right. Love is encouraging others to find their wholeness in that which is good and healthy and God-honoring. That's what he says love looks like. Now, for example, a little example. Um, Let's just say uh, two, two ladies, they make a phone call and they're friends, right? And the one lady calls the other lady and says, hey, 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 we're, we're friends, right? Oh, yeah, we're friends. We're like best friends, right? Oh, yeah, we've been best friends forever. And so the lady who initiates the call says, oh, okay, good, good, good. Because when my husband calls you later tonight, you tell him that we were at the movies together last night. But we weren't. I was but I wasn't there with you or him. I was with another guy. And so we're, we're friends, right? Well, yeah, yeah, but you will do this for me, right? I mean, because we're like tight. We're like tighter than sisters. You would do this for me, wouldn't you? Pause for a moment. Is that love? Asking your friend to go against their conviction, asking your friend to do that which you know is wrong, is that love or is that loving at all? No, because what does the scripture says? The scripture teaches us the definition says love does not delight in what? In evil, but rejoices in what's true. Love embraces that which is good. Love embraces that which is right. It doesn't ask somebody to go beyond their convictions. It never does. Uh, another little example here. It's a classic example. Um, a, a couple's out on a date and... Uh, his affection for her is a little bit more than she's comfortable with. And so he pushes and tries and tries really hard. And, and eventually he pulls out the classic line, right? The classic line, baby, if you love me, come on, right? I mean, baby, come on, man. I mean, if you really care, I just want to be with you. Pause again. Is that love? Is that love? Max Lucado, he's uh, one, of, one of the great writers out there, and he's a little old-fashioned at times, and he's a little hokey at times. Maybe that's why I like him so much. I don't know, but um, I'm borrowing a lot of his concepts about love for this whole series. So he, he writes in such a picturesque sort of a way, and he describes a moment like this where you hear something like, come on, baby. If you love me, you would. And he says, in those kinds of moments or, or in situations where your siren goes off and you go, that's not right, that's, that's wrong. He says that's, your, he says that's your phony love detector going off. Your phony love detector. It's like God's telling you, that's not love. That's not love because love doesn't do that. Love doesn't push people beyond where they're comfortable. Love does not push people beyond what they know to be right or wrong. Love simply doesn't operate like that because love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with what? With what is true, with what is true. And so let's even make this a bit more personal. Let me just have permission to meddle a little deeper into our lives collectively right now. 
um, because I'm guessing there is stuff in your life and there's stuff in my life that we, that we delight in that if we were completely honest and if somebody could see into the inner recesses of our soul, you would have to admit that it does not honor God. You delight in something that takes you from the heart of God. It moves you away from him. And so maybe it looks something like this, that when life can be the most stressful for you, when life seems to be, whew, the pressure is on and it's all coming you know, down the pipe, and, and instead of running to, to God or to running to your family or to your wife, your husband, your, maybe your kids or, or your friends or somebody maybe in your little circle called life group, instead of running to that which you know you should, you delight in something else, maybe you actually head to the basement. Or maybe you head to the garage. And instead of delighting in that which is good, you delight in a drink. Or two. Or three. Or four. Until it's all washed away. Until the stress finds its way to be gone. But let's just be honest. Let's just ask the question. Is that really delighting in that which God wants you to delight in? Is it, is it becoming who God wants you to become? Is it shaping in you and is it shaping in me um, what God wants for us? I would just humbly submit to you that I doubt that it is. I doubt that you become who you want to become in those moments when you run after things that, it, that God doesn't delight in. Or, or let's say, you know, you're kind of in a situation in a life and, uh, and, and you, you're just not, you know, satisfied in life. And uh, you're alone and you're lonely. And uh, you think to yourself that it doesn't really hurt anybody, that nobody else even knows. It's, it's like personal, it's like private. And, and so you go on the internet. And a couple clicks away, a whole world changes for you. And you justify it by saying, well, it's just my, I don't know, release. It's just my, you know, satisfaction. It's just, it's just me. It's not hurting anybody. What could this hurt? And preacher even bringing this up is like, you're meddling now. This is like, you're going too far even asking these kinds of questions. Let me just, let me just say it like this. You're delighting in somebody's daughter who is not yours. You are delighting and a woman who is not your wife and could be somebody else's wife. You are delighting by making an object of a daughter of God himself. And let me just ask again, just humbly, let me just press in a little bit. Is that who you want to become? Is this shaping in you all that God wants to shape in you? Are you delighting in something that takes you far from the heart of God? Because he says, do not delight in what? That which is evil, that which turns your heart away from God, but delight in truth. But delight in the truth. Find your wholeness in the truth. And, and so, so this man named Paul, 
who God used to write these words to us, he makes a, a huge shift in this kind of description of love. And he, he's going from love is and love is not to love does not do certain things to love does things. And, and he stops right in the middle and he has this one sentence that contains both. He says, love does not delight in things that do not come from God. It's not good. It's not healthy. It will never help you become all that you're supposed to become. But then in the same sentence, he goes, but love does something else. Love rejoices in the truth. Love embraces that which is good. Love purposely runs after good things in our life. Purposefully. And then he ratchets it up even a little bit more. He, he begins to say, and love does some other things. Love does these certain things. And when you see this, you see love. And he, and he kind of puts like this all-inclusive package vacation deal together. He, he runs these things like, it's like a buy one, get three free kind of a deal. It's like, uh, he, he packages it and says, love is this all-inclusive package. And, and, and these are the words that he writes to us. He says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. One of the other translators translates it a little bit different, but I think you'll see the same feeling, the same vein that comes through. Uh, the NIV translates it like this, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 7. It says, it always, love, always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always persevere. Now, if you were to go through this, you would see that both of these have a repeating phrasing, don't they? Can you pick that up in there? There's a repeating phrasing. He's trying to drive something home so that even the, like, the, the dullest of us, like, we can't miss what he's driving. He's driving something. He says, always, 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 all things, all things, all things. He's making a huge point. So it's like when, when Paul was writing this. He sits down and he's like, okay, God, what do you want me to convey? Because but, it's, it's coming together in this big chapter. We could even call this, I don't know, the love chapter or something. It'd be really cool. And he writes this down and he begins to say, well, what does love look like? And he starts off with a little phrase, right? He says, love is, love is, love is, love is, love is patient and love is kind. He's like, yeah, 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 that's good. If I could just get that into my life, man, I'd be like, woo, I'd be going downfield, right? And then he says, and not only is love is patient, love is kind, but he goes, but love doesn't do other things. So he says, love is not, I don't know, love is not jealous and, and, and love is, is not boastful or proud or rude. And he's like, woo, 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 that's, I've struggled with that stuff, but that is so good. I mean, people are going to read this for, I don't know, a couple months to come, right? No, he's like, no, no, God, you're telling me something here. And he goes, love is not these things. And then, and then he ratchets it up another level and he says, and love does not demand its own way. It's, it's not irritable. And then he puts one of the best little phrases, I think, in all of human history. He says, love doesn't keep list. Love doesn't keep this list of wrongdoings. And he's like, oh man, if we could just get by keeping lists, if we could somehow get forgiveness into people, that would change humanity. And so he writes it down. Love doesn't keep lists. And, and then he goes, well, there's something really big though that love doesn't do. And we get it wrong because we think love is making other people happy. And he goes, that's not what it is. So he, so he writes this, this really harsh line, if you think about it. He says, love doesn't delight in evil. It just doesn't do that. 
It never celebrates it. It doesn't entertain itself with evil. It, it, it doesn't embrace it. It doesn't encourage it in other people. It doesn't encourage it in ourselves. Love just doesn't do that. But he says, but love rejoices with truth. And then he gets to this point. He's like, so I'm kind of at the end here. And I'm like, what am I going to do to wrap this? I want to end big. I want to go home with like a home run here, right? And he goes, this, what I've written, is it capture all of what love is? Does it capture all of what it means? Does it describe all of what it is? And like a light bulb goes on. And he's like, no, it doesn't. And he, and he ends up writing this. This is exactly what he writes. Look at these words. Look at these words. He writes that. And you're going, what the heck is that? That is like, that is beauty right there. He, he writes, Panta Mastacholi. Panta Asiago cheese bread stuff. But he, he, he writes something in the Greek. Now, now, pause for a second. If somebody texting you right now and, and they're like, hey, what are you doing? You could go, hey, I'm just reading a little Greek right now. But be humble about it because love is not boastful, all right? Be humble, okay? But this is the Greek. And look at this. Um, it's hard to miss the emphasis, right? What's the word that's emphasized over and over here? Panta. Panta. And you know what the word panta means? It, it comes from uh, this Greek expression where we get uh, pantheism. We get pantheism from it. And that means that God is in all things, um, this, the, the, uh, the, the, we get the word pantry from this word. Anybody have a pantry in your house? You know what the word pantry, it's a Greek word actually. And it literally means the collector of all things. A panacea, you know what a panacea is? It means the cure for all things. And, and so Paul says that that love, the kind of God type of love that we're, we're talking about, it is so big, it is panta, it is in all things, it covers all things, it's about all things, it, it is, it's supposed to come from you. It is a God type of love that is huge, it's a package deal. Listen, um, with a, if somebody claims to be a godly person, they should love like a godly person. Not just pick and choose the parts of love that really helps them or that matters to them. They take it all. See, friends, when we, when we try to follow God, when we try to say we are a follower of Jesus, that means we take it all and he is over all things in our life. And Paul says, this is how it works. It always loves like this. It's in all things. And he makes it so beautiful. And one, the other translators come along and they change it up a little bit and they say, it always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres because it carries this understanding that this kind of God type of love is consistent from you. That it's always present in your life, even when life is hard. Now you think about this. It says to you and me, if we're going to love like God loves, that it always protects it, always trusts it, always hopes it, always perseveres. But friends, let me just be honest with you. Maybe you can agree with this. That's hard to do sometimes. It is hard to love like that when the other person you're supposed to be loving has made it impossible for you to love them. You ever felt that way? You ever felt that way? Like you've just come to the end of a relationship because you're like, I can't do this anymore. I can't go forward anymore. I can't love. I can't protect the way God says. I, I can't protect this relationship anymore because you have broken this relationship. 
He, he says to trust, but you, you, you go, I can't trust anymore because you have hurt me so many times. I can't hope for a future with you anymore because you have broken the future. I'm not sure that there is a future. I can't persevere under this. I can't endure through this anymore. Friends, have you, have you been there before in a relationship like that where you just go, I got to check out. Anybody? Is it just me? Any, I mean, you've been there? Where you just feel like you're at the end of a relationship. And everything in you, there's a temptation to just shut the door on it, to run away. But let me tell you something, friends. Paul comes along. And this is a very difficult thing for every single one of us in this room. And I would say it's going to become more difficult for you the older that you get. But Paul comes along. And he says our love is rooted in a God-type love that has certain characteristics. That it is in all things that you do and it's always consistent in your life. You can't choose when to love and when not to love. You can't choose when to be kind and when not to be kind. It's in you because, listen, because God is in you. It's in you like this because God has, has formed this in you. This is the kind of God love that, that he wants for us. And so um, Paul, the founder of this uh, little church in Corinth, he, he writes this letter. As a matter of fact, this is deeply personal stuff. As a matter of fact, this is why we even have this letter today to read 2,000 years later. It's because Paul started this little church in the city of Corinth and everything was falling apart in this church. The very church that he you know, planted and founded, uh, he, he hears back that they are dysfunctional and the unity was falling apart and everything was a mess. And so Paul sits down to write a little letter to them. We call that letter the First Corinthians. The book of 1 Corinthians, that little letter kind of grew and becomes like a book. He's like, you guys are so jacked up. It's going to take me like a whole book to fix you guys, you know? And, and so he writes this letter and look at the, it's almost at the very beginning. We're talking a few paragraphs in. He's addressing this church that he started and like just a few paragraphs in, in verse 10, look what he writes to us. Look at this, look up on the screens. This is incredible. Um, he writes to the church of Corinth. He says, I appeal to you. That's a strong term. He goes, I'm pleading with you. I'm begging you to hear me on this. He says, dear brothers and sisters, he ratchets it up, right? And he says, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, I'm going to tell you something. Live in what? Harmony. Harmony, Harmony with one another. Sing together. And he's not talking about singing. He's talking about the way that we live, the way that we treat one another. He says, live in harmony, cheer each other on, support one another, care for one another. He says, live in harmony with each other. And he says, let there be no what? Division, rather be of one mind, united in thought and in purpose. For some of the members, now listen to this, for some of the members of, the, of Chloe's household have ratted you out. So Paul goes away and apparently he runs into this person from the household of Chloe. I don't even know who Chloe is. But Chloe rats him out and says, the church is falling apart. The very church that you started, it's falling apart. And so, uh, and so they say, they, they have told me that you have many quarrels, my dear brothers and sisters. And if you were to track through the pages of 1 Corinthians, it's amazing. Like on every page, Paul is trying to fix an argument. On every single page, Paul is trying to fix a division. Like right from the very beginning, it starts off, like the very first chapter, he says, hey, 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 I've heard some of you 
aren't sure who the leader is. And you're arguing about leading and who wants to lead and who should be leading. And some of you are saying, well, I'm following this guy. And some say I'm following this guy. And others, you go, I'm not following anybody. I'm just following Jesus. I'm just showing up for the ride. I don't even really care. You know? And they're going, hey, Paul's going, it doesn't work that way. You can't just sit around and sing, how great is our God? There's a leader, and I've appointed this leader, and you've got to figure out how to follow this leader. And they're like, well, I don't want to follow this leader. And they're like, they're divided over this. And then it, it kind of rolls right into the next thing. And we learned that, that they, they can't, they, they're, they're deceptive toward one another, and, and they're uh, backbiting toward one another. Paul's like, well, you've got to knock that off. He says, that's not what the purpose of the church is. That's not how we build relationships. And then it kind of rolls in. And a couple chapters later, he fi- you find out that, um, that they have all kinds of sexual problems in the church. Like, listen, we got sexual problems in our church. It's just true. There's stuff that's going on in here that should not be going on. And Paul hears that stuff's going on in his little church that should not be going on. Listen to this. He, he, he hears that there is a man in the church that is, that is sleeping with his father's wife. We would assume that would be his stepmother, right? And the weird thing is, in this church, some people thought that was cool. And other people thought that was crazy. And they can't even get their act together. And Paul says, this should be a real easy one. And then he says, there's some of you who are visiting prostitutes and you think it's cool and other people think that's crazy. That should be an easy one. And then he says, there are people living together in your church who are not married, but pretending they're married. And then he says, some of you are, are, are falling into this idea of homosexuality and all that kind of stuff. And Paul holds nothing back. And he comes and says, that's not what it's going to be. We are going to be unified. And here's what we got to believe. Here's how love is. Here's how love works. And, and then a little bit later, we learn that they're arguing over business. They're not even treating each other right in business. And, and people are like ripping each other off. And so people are like going to court over things. And they're like, they're like arguing in court. And Paul's like, are you crazy? You're Christians. You should not be treating each other this way. You're Christians. Don't you dare go to court over each other. Figure out how to love one another. And then he goes on and he lists a bunch of other things. He gets to this point in this book. This is unbelievable. He goes, you guys are so divided that you are arguing over who is the most spiritual among you. Now that is a weird thing. I mean, come on. That is a weird thing thing. Like, I'm, uh, I, I, I really appreciate you, but I just want to let you know that I am way further along than you. I'm just way above you. I mean, what is that? They get to this point where they're arguing about spiritual giftedness, and, and one person saying, well, my spiritual giftedness is better than your spiritual giftedness, and mine's better than yours. And Paul's going, are you guys insane? You're breaking the church. And then he writes this letter. And he, uh, he comes along and, and he meets up with somebody. And again, we don't even know who Chloe is or their household, but he meets up. And all of a sudden, like, I don't know, he gets an email and it's like this laundry list of dysfunctions within the church. Or maybe he gets a text and says, Paul, we need to talk. You know, and they talk. And so he meets up with this person. And this person begins to describe just how broken the relationships are. And so Paul comes and, he, and then he begins to write about this God type of love that fixes the dysfunctions in our relationship. This God type of love that ought to change everything. And he writes chapter 13 to us. And he says, this is what it's about. That you and I figure out how to treat 
one another. The God type of love, he says, it produces something different. It produces something more. Dare I even say it produces something better in our life. It produces harmony, not discord. It produces unity, not brokenness. It it, it produces a, a purpose and a sense of oneness. He says, this is what the God type of love does for us. And he says, it brings hope where there's no hope. It brings trust where there's no trust. It brings brings, uh, perseverance when you want to give up easy. It doesn't give up easy. It just doesn't. And then, look at this. He, he, He drops this line in there. He's all done and he's made it beautiful and it's poetic. And I'm like, dude, I use four pantas in a row. But he feels he's not done. And he drops a bomb on them. And you can look at this. It's 1 Corinthians 13, 8 in the NIV version. He says it like this. He says, I'm going to tell you one more thing about love. Love, it never fails. Love, yeah, yeah, yeah. Love, he says, it never fails. He says, love never loses. He says, love, it really does win in the end. He says, love doesn't doesn't give up easy. No, love, he says, fights. It fights for your family. It fights for your marriage. It fights for your children. It fights fights for your church. It fights for your friendships. It fights for your community. It, It says, love never fails. It really does win in the end. And he says, this is what it ought to look like in our lives. This ought to be the increasing picture of who we are because, listen, love never fails. It really does win every single time when it's practiced. If we can get our minds around this, our hearts around this, it will work in our lives. So if you wanted to have a picture of what this would look like in the modern world, you could look to a lady named Catherine Laws. Her husband was the warden at the Sing Sing prison from 1921 to 1941. I don't know if you've heard of the Sing Sing prison. It's in upstate New York, or actually just north of New York City, and it's a legendary uh, prison. It, It houses some of the most notorious, evil characters in all of American history. It opened up in 1829. It's one of the longest acting prisons in America, and literally America locks away her worst people in this place. And this guy becomes the warden. And when he becomes the warden, Catherine is just a young woman. She's got three little babies, barely walking, kind of in tow behind her. And, and when, she, when, when her husband takes over the prison, everybody warns her and says, listen, 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 no matter what, never, ever, ever, never, never, ever step foot behind those walls in that prison. Because you'll be just like so many other people who've come in from the outside and you will be raped and you will be murdered. And by God, never bring your kids there. Well, Catherine, true story, she didn't listen. As a matter of fact, the very first, the very first basketball game they ever held in this prison, there was Catherine. She comes walking into the prison with her three little babies in tow, and she sits not in a special spot for the warden's family. She goes and sits in the bleacher section among all of the inmates, all three of her little ones right there. And she's cheering right along. It's crazy. 
And, and people became so concerned because she spent so much time inside the prison walls that, that people were writing her and her friends were talking to her all the time. As a matter of fact, she eventually has to write a, a, a friend back who, who was just begging her not to, to go into, into the prison. And this is what she writes. She says, my husband and I are going to take care of these men. And I believe that they are going to take care of us. They'll take care of me. And she ends this little letter saying, I don't have anything to worry about. I'll be fine. I'll be fine. As a matter of fact, uh, when she heard of one convict, uh, a convicted murderer um, was blind and could not read, Catherine learned Braille. In order to learn how to read Braille, in order to teach a prisoner, a murderer, who could not read how to read. And at the same time, she hears that there's a whole bunch of prisoners who were deaf and couldn't communicate. And so she took it upon herself as the warden's wife to, to begin to learn like the sign language stuff. And, and she did this so she could teach these murderers and rapists how to communicate with her. She decided that she was going to love in a whole different way. And for 16 years, Catherine Laws uh, softened the hearts of some of the hardest inmates of Sing Sing Prison. And in 1937, the world saw what kind of a difference a God type of love could make. Because in 1937, uh, the prisoners knew something was wrong on one particular day when their warden didn't report to work. You see, Lawrence Laws, the warden, he was like clockwork. In at seven, out at six, doing his rounds. He was like clockwork and they realized Something was wrong when he didn't show up. Well, word quickly spread throughout the prison that Catherine had died in an auto accident. And so he didn't come to work. And the next day, there is, true story, there is a warden that's sent in to, to cover for him in his absence. Uh, and his first day on the job, he does his rounds in the morning like he's supposed to do. And he comes to the main gate. And he, re he records something very unique in his little memoirs. He says, I come to the main gate and there's a huge crowd of inmates. Some of the evilest people the world has ever known. And they're gathered around the main gate. And he says, as I walked along the parameter, he says, I noticed that no one was stirring. No one was speaking. And there was hardly, quote, a dry eye among them. You see, he figured out that they were pressing up against the gate because they wanted to get as close to the memorial as possible because they wanted to pay their final respects to Catherine because they had heard that she was laid out in the, in the warden's home, which was about three quarters of a mile walk right down the road from the prison. And so they had gathered to the gate nearest the home, paying their respects. And the warden made a, this temporary warden, he was warden for a week, and he makes one of the most remarkable decisions in prison history. He orders that the gates were to be opened. And he says to the men, he says, you want to go to Catherine's memorial, don't you? And it was like he said in unison, they just nodded their head. Then he says, men, I trust you. You're free to go. Just make sure you're back by check-in tonight when the memorial is done. And history records that a couple hundred of the worst notorious criminals that America has ever known walked three quarters of a mile down the road without guard or escort. And to a man, 
every single one of them returned to their prison cell that night to a man. Friends, what makes that happen? Not the threat of more prison, but love. Love changes everything. Love changes the world. Love makes the world different, and it made these men different. And let me just suggest that to some of us in this room, God's type love is making you and me different. It's making you and me different. And we don't always get it right. Matter of fact, we get it wrong far too much. We're like what Paul had to deal with, right? Gotta fix this, gotta fix that, gotta fix this, gotta fix that. But love from God is making us different. Because when Jesus walked among us, he put on a love show, didn't he? He, he put on a love clinic. Matter of fact, when, when the crowd was angry with him, and, he, and they thought he was, he was overturning their systems, right? They hurled their insults at him. And what did he do? He loved them and blessed them. And said, pray for those who insult you and persecute you. And when, and, and when his closest followers, his closest friends, betrayed him and turned their back on him, what did he do? Did he, did he kick him to the curb? No, friends. He, he literally loves them and embraces them and elevates them and encourages them. And says, I'm still with you. You may not be with me, but I am still with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. And then when Rome came and they arrested our Lord Jesus and they put him in chains and and they beat him and they mocked him. And they spat upon his face. And eventually they nailed him to a cross. Did he curse them? He shouts, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know. And Jesus showed the world that love wins every single time it's tried. That love never fails. It never fails. Amen? Amen. So Father in heaven, uh, we are, at least I am, so grateful for your relentless love over me. I'm so grateful that uh, you don't look at me and go, Jeremy, that's for the hundredth time I told you to knock that off. You've never kicked me to the curb. You never renounced me as your son. You've never taken the joy of the kingdom of God away from me. You have shown me that love never fails. And God, I am so grateful. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters here tonight. God, that uh, your spirit would reveal your heart of love and grace to the world, to them. Personally, every single man, woman, and child in this place. God, may, 
we sense your grace and sense your goodness to us, Lord. We are thankful. Help us to love like you love. In Jesus' name, together we say, amen, amen.